Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. Today we're in week number three of our series on the prodigal son. I'm Pastor Brian and joined here by Pastor Ross Anderson. Ross, today we're finally going to look at the elder brother, the third character in the story. But in a sense, he's the first character because he's sort of really the the reason Jesus is telling the story. He's trying to get a point across to a guy like the elder brother. Remember, we talked about rule keepers on one end of the spectrum and rule breakers on the other end of the spectrum. We've already talked about the rule breaker, the younger son, the prodigal son, so to speak. Now we're going to talk about rule keepers, and you are one of those rule keepers. I am. I've always been by personality. It seems like by culture or personality or something, most of us kind of fall into one category or the other. But it's interesting here because I think in a lot of treatments of this parable, the older brother's often overlooked, and, and you get to the verse you know, where the father's welcoming home the prodigal and throws a feast for him, and and that feels, you know, maybe like the end of the story. Yay, the, the kid come home, came home, he was lost, and now he's been found. Yeah. And, but yet there's this really important coda that's added on to the end of the story. It's really crucial, actually. Yeah, and really what we've been saying this whole time is that no matter how far from God you might feel, you, you, you're not too far. God can reach you. You can't out-sin God. And People probably think we're only talking about the prodigal son, but no, we're, we're actually talking about both ends of the spectrum, because if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know that rule keepers oftentimes were the bad guys in the New Testament. These are the ones that Jesus was always calling out, which is what he's doing right here. He's calling out rule keepers, basically warning them that you might be far from God and not even know it. Yeah, which is counterintuitive. It certainly was to them. Because most of the people who are rule keepers, they're often very religious people, and the religious context is the way that they express their like that inner kind of uh, standard that they want to you know be worthy or do the right thing. And so, actually, so Jesus is talking to the most religious people in that culture. There were you know Luke chapter fifteen verses one and two tells us that there were some tax collectors and other notorious sinners there. They're rule breakers. Jesus had a message for them for sure. But there were also Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, the rule keepers, and um, they were complaining that Jesus spent too much time with the rule breakers. And so Jesus wanted them to really understand the heart of God, and, and there's a veiled um, sort of challenge here for them that if they think about it, they realize, oh, you know, maybe we could possibly, as a rule keeper, even be as far from God as that notorious rule breaker is. Yeah, in fact, that's what we're going to do today as we look at the story, starting in verse 25 of Luke 15. We're going to, we're going to look at five marks that you might be a rule keeper who is far from God. And we need to make sure to say this. Not every rule keeper is far from God. I think it's important to say this. It's good to keep rules, right? I mean, generally speaking, it's good to yeah. keep rules. It's yeah. good if you obey the Ten Commandments. If, if It's good if you look at what God says in His Word, and, and if you're obedient. We say in our Pursue God resources that this that second part of the circle of being a Christian is, is honoring God. So I, I want to make sure from the outset we're not encouraging people to be a rule breaker. That's not the point. We're just saying that you can be a rule keeper and still miss the point. Right, that's why we want to expose that sort of assumption that many, many people have, that because they're a rule keeper, because they're religious, then everything must be okay with God. But Jesus 
has something else to say about that. Yeah, so again, if you're, ta- if you're keeping score at home, we're going to give you five marks of a rule keeper who is far from God. You think you're not far from God. You think you're one of his favorites, but it turns out you might be far from God like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were. And so as we go through these five marks, and we're pulling these straight from the story of the elder brother, uh, I want to make sure that you're just... I hope that you're open to the Holy Spirit working in your heart, and maybe there needs to be some conviction for you, uh, and maybe today you're going to realize that you're further from God than you thought, but the good news, by the way, is God still wants to accept you. He still wants to call you back. You're going to see that by the end of, the, of this little parable today. So here's the first, first mark of a rule keeper who's far from God. You work for yourself, not for the benefit of others. Yeah, Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. Yeah, I love what the Bible background commentary says from IVP. By the way, there's going to be a lot of great nuggets from the Bible background commentary in the Old Testament here. Here's the first one. They write that the elder brother is apparently the only person in the village uninformed about, the, the, about this whole thing, bursts the bounds of plausibility in the real world, where the el- elder brother should himself have actually taken the lead at reconciling the father and the younger son. So this touch of unrealism is necessary to graphically underline the older brother's isolation from the community. And Ross, I'll admit, I didn't this is one of these, this part of the parable I've always sort of brushed past, but there's, there are so many nuggets here to consider, and this first one really jumps out at me. Yeah, how did, how did, it's so interesting. He comes in from the fields, he's been working hard, and as we go through the story, we're going to see he, uh, the, how hard he worked, how really devoted he was, how faithful he was, but we're also going to see a lot of his motivation later on, and we see that really... The question is, how did he not know about what was going on here? Well, you know, Jesus is telling a story, and so he can tell the story however he wants to, mm-hmm. and apparently throws in this interesting twist that, that underscores if the brother is so obtuse about everything that's going on, then there must be a reason why Jesus introduces that in, and it kind of illustrates how disconnected he is from his family, from the community, from everything that's going on. He's very self-focused and self-centered. And so his working in the fields, it's really about what he can get. It's really about proving something about himself than it is he's not concerned at all about about his brother. Yeah, contrast the older brother with the father. The father saw the younger brother from a long way off. We saw that in week one and in week two, and he ran to him. The older brother... Clearly, again, we can't really press with a parable. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to press the details too much, but I, to, to me, this is just too—it's too hard to pass up, pass up on. The older brother was nowhere to be found. To me, it's and it's pretty clear from his attitude. He didn't care about the younger brother at all. I don't think he lost any sl- sleep over his younger brother being gone and lost, and who know, who knew if he'd ever come home. He's more interested in working, which is which is so typical of a rule keeper who's mm-hmm. far from God, right? Mm-hmm. Someone right. who works hard, you care more about work than about people. And about the relationship, exactly. Yeah. So that's the first one, mark number one. Here's mark number two. You get mad at God 
for his extravagance toward others. Luke 15, 28. The older brother, when he heard this, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. Now, that's a pretty simple point, but man, how, how often have you seen this with someone? They get, they get a rule keeper, someone who feels self, this really springs from self-righteousness. You feel self-righteous, and so when you look at God's grace towards someone else, it, you're indignant. Yeah, this is so interesting to look at this in the context of the whole chapter, where Jesus tells these three parables, right? The, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and now the parable of the lost son. And in each of those cases, the shepherd, how does he respond when he finds the lost sheep? He rejoices. The woman finds the lost coin. She's overjoyed. The father finds his lost son. He throws a party, a celebration. Now, by vivid contrast, how does the older brother respond? Right. You know, he's mad. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first, it's the first time in the story that we see someone that is not sort of caught up in the culture of heaven. Remember, the culture of heaven is that the Father rejoices, but all the angels rejoice too. So it seems to me like if you're part of, if you're really a part of something, then then the 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 leader of that culture, his heart, his spirit, his attitude permeates the whole culture. Clearly, the elder brother didn't get the memo that we're supposed to be rejoicing. We're supposed to be happy. He he's just angry, and he he's he's upset that God would be so prodigal, right? Yeah. And that's really what prod- pro- we learned last time, that the father is the real prodigal. He's wastefully extravagant toward his son, recklessly even extravagant toward his son. Yeah, and we'll see later on, just a, just a little uh, hang with us, because we'll see later on why the older brother had th- this attitude. Yeah. All right, so number one, you work for yourself, not for the benefit of others. Number two, you get mad at God for his extravagance toward others. And then number three, you're blind to God's extravagance toward you. Verse 28 says, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father had to come out and beg him to come in. Now, here's what the BBC says about this. Again, another great nugget from InterVarsity Press. Publicly refusing to enter in the midst of a party makes an intra-family dispute public news which dampens the celebration, and worse yet, shames the father just as the younger brother had done in a culture where honor and shame were essential values. And this was also a grievous insult to the father's dignity and could have warranted discipline or even being disinherited. But notice, instead of punishing him, the father comes out and humbles himself, gives up his honor to seek reconciliation with his older brother son. So this is interesting. In this culture where the father really is, you know, he's the patriarch, and it's it's meaningful. And, um, you know, he comes out and begs his son. He gets on his knees, as it were, which is like so uncharacteristic mm. of what you'd expect. But I thought that was a great nugget to understand that that the younger son had totally dishonored and disrespected his father, offended him by asking for the inheritance before his father was dead. He's saying, like, I, I don't care about you, I just care about your money. And, and now you see, really, this is the counterpart to that. The older brother is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a different form, you know, a different a shape, where he's, where he's really shaming his father, saying, I don't... Essentially saying, I don't really care about you. Mm-hmm. I just I care about, you know, what it means to... what I can have because of you. 
Yeah, and I yeah, I think it's interesting because we read this as Westerners, and I, I'd never really noticed this before. I don't think I was clued in to the culture for you know this Eastern culture. Like I'm sure people in that part of the country or the world today would notice that we and we wouldn't notice. But I think wouldn't you agree, Ross, that the that the hearers, Jesus's hearers in that day, certainly would have been gasping at the elder brother's response, right? Yeah, there's a lot of things in here that have shock value to Jesus' hearers that we might miss because of time and place. And yeah, they would have, uh, you know, you don't know whether they're seeing themselves, the idea is that they, they need to see themselves potentially in this, but, um, but yeah, this is like, what? What did he just say? What did he just do to his father? Well, and I think the other thing that we, we would miss is that the father was extending an olive branch to this older son. And that's why I would encourage anyone who's listening to this who might start feeling a little bit of conviction from the Holy Spirit that maybe, just maybe, you're one of those rule keepers who's actually far from God and you didn't know it. And now you're realizing, and I want to make sure you you understand, just as God the Father wanted to be extravagant and reckless and kind and gracious and generous to his lost son, his prodigal son, he wants to do the same for you. Yeah, and part of this is, you know, you're blind to God's extravagance toward you. Well, when you're that kind of rule keeper, it can be easy to just take God's blessing for granted, because you start to feel like it's owed to you, because you've been faithful, you've been responsible, righteous, etc. And that kind of actually leads into the next point. Yeah, point mark number four, that you might be a rule keeper who's actually further away from God than you thought, is that you look at relationships transactionally, right? Now, before we read this, what's the other way to look at relationships? Ross, what would you? What would the well, other word be? I would be? say that, that, that there's an intimate connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so it's about the person rather than what the person does for you mm-hmm. or can get for you. Yeah. So here's what it says in verses 28 through 30. It says the older brother was angry, wouldn't go in. So his father came out and begged him. But here's how he replied: All these years, I've slaved for you, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this, it's interesting, he says it, yet when this son of yours, he doesn't even... distance himself from this other person, yeah. When this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Now again, there's so much here. Let's read the BBC again one more time on this before we uh, dive into this some more, Russ. It says that failing to greet one's father with a title, like father or sir, which is what the younger brother had respectfully done earlier in the story. Yeah, back in verse 21. Yeah. Was a grievous insult to the father's dignity. So there's another thing we might have missed as Westerners, that he just starts talking. He just just says to him, all these years I've slain. He doesn't say father. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say sir. That was really offensive. It was an insult to the father's dignity. Yet again, an insult to the father's dignity. And and the other part is that this son emphasizes his service, even though the father wanted a son rather than a servant. Oh man, so many great nuggets That's a powerful here. thing. I want to come back to that in a minute, but let's understand that the, the issue with the service and what we're talking about, a transactional approach to God. 
And so he comes in, his response to his father is to emphasize all the different things he's done for the father. I've worked hard, I've slaved, I've been so, I've never disobeyed you, everything that you ever said. Um, And then he flips that right around to highlight the things that he feels like his father has refused to do for him. Mm. So there's a there's a, almost a mathematical equation here yeah. where I do A and you're supposed to do B. And then the, the offense of it to him was that his younger brother never did A, but the father did B anyway. So he, his younger brother failed in his transaction, and the father failed in his transaction because um, the other party's expected to do something for you in return for what you did. He's holding up his end, he thinks, where everybody else around him is failing to hold up their end of the transaction. Yeah, so let's translate this into spiritual terms here, Ross, just to be clear, because Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling a story in physical terms, um, but really what he's getting at is something that the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers develop more f- a little bit more further later on in, in the New Testament. And what, what Jesus is calling out is what we would call works righteousness. Yeah. Right, yeah. people, rule keepers who tend to think, and there's a lot of there are a lot of them out there. They tend to think that that they at least in part have to earn their salvation, have to work for their salvation. Right, there's it, it, a self sufficiency that's at the heart of that, and you know, and that's easy. That's um, clearly demonstrated in the the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law who mm-hmm. were mentioned in verse two and their whole approach to Jesus over and over again. They were really scrupulous about keeping God's law, and more than that, they were very scrupulous about keeping all kinds of laws and rules that they made up in God's name. Right. Um, but they're they're far. From, they were far from God because they didn't get the heart. They didn't. They didn't have the intimate relationship with God because they came to God with an expectation that we're going to do this, and that kind of forces you, God, to have to do this for us. Mm-hmm. You know, you owe us now. Yeah, Paul sums it up perfectly in Ephesians two eight nine. He says. You have been saved by grace through faith, right? So think about the younger brother. It was complete, a complete gift, which the older brother is missing. It was a complete gift. You have been saved by grace through faith, and this is a gift from God. It is not by works so that you can't boast about it, so that you can't brag about it, as if somehow it's a transaction. You paid your dues, and so then God will pay you back, and you'll get to heaven someday. Yeah. And, and Jesus is trying to dismantle this with the prodigal son story. And again, later on, we see guys like Peter and James and Paul and John, and they explain it more doctrinally for us in this wonderful central doctrine of the Bible, which is that we're saved by grace through faith. Yeah, and here's something I've noticed, that you know, a person can come to, to faith, can come to God for initial salvation and the forgiveness of their sins and you know, by trusting entirely what Jesus did on the cross, but then it's like they flip a switch and they start to live transactionally. Mm. Once you're a Christian, you, you start to live as if, oh, if I give, then God is obligated to give financially to me mm. back, or if I obey God, then God owes me a comfortable life. And we make up all kinds of rules transactional rules that we expect God to, to fulfill, even if he never promised to do any of those things. But, but it's very easy to, to live the Christian life not by, not by grace, um, not by faith and trust, but to live it out transactionally even if you started on the right footing. Yeah, that's a good point. So, okay, let's get specific. I wouldn't let, not, I'm not to name call here, but let's get specific. One example, when you started sharing that, Ross, I thought of the prosperity gospel. 
The prosperity gospel says, hey, if you give to God, and by the way, typically the guys who are saying that you're not giving to God, you're giving to them. But <laughs> yeah. you, you give to my ministry, and God is obligated to bless you, right? That's an example of someone who's really essentially a rule. He thinks he's being a rule keeper, but he's missing the whole point. Right. God exactly. doesn't ever say that. Yeah, because, and what it does is it puts the blessing higher than the person of God mm. himself. It says, well, this is what I want from God. How about if I just want God? You know, so that it, it skews the relationship by putting the gift above the giver. Yeah. Another way to say that is you're seeking the his God's hand, but you're not seeking his face. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're not interested in a relationship with the living God of the universe who's so generous and kind toward us. You're just interested in what he can do for you today. Right. And then what he can do for you tomorrow. And a lot of times those people, their faith their shallow faith is exposed eventually, because when the bottom falls out, then they turn their backs on God. Yeah, and like you said earlier, what God, God doesn't want another servant. He wants children. He wants sons here. And so the father, he, see, he already made it clear to the younger son. The younger son says, I'm going to come back to, you, to, to my father, and I'll offer myself as a servant. He says, I don't deserve to be a son. Well, that's all true, but the father didn't want a servant. The father gave him the ring and the robe and the party and everything to indicate that, no, I'm not going to take you back as a servant. I'm only going to take you on the basis of being a son. Mm. But now the older brother comes, hanging his hat on all of the slaving he's done for the father, all right. the work and everything. He's actually approaching God as a servant as well yeah, and right. not as a son. That's what rule keepers have to be really careful about that, especially religious rule keepers, because we can fall into a relationship with God that's more like a servant than a son. Yeah, and I, I, one more example. I, I think of this. You know, we do work, we do ministry on, among the Mormons, and I don't think every Mormon t- looks at it this way. But I think most of them do, Ross. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most of them do simply because it's actually part of the fundamental teaching in the Mormon Church. I think for Christians, it can happen, like you said, it can happen over time. It can happen in the culture of a church, or in your own heart, or in your family, or whatever. And that certainly is true, but for if you're a Mormon listener right now, I really encourage you to really think about what this what this parable is speaking to you, because it's actually fundamentally part of what your church teaches is that you have to at least in some part earn your salvation. Right, and and the prophet, the Mormon prophets have said that every blessing that God gives is predicated upon obedience to a certain law. Yeah. You know, so that's exactly a transactional approach to God. Right. And so Jesus is really challenging that here. And I, I will say this though, Ross, I have met and the longer I've been in Utah, the more I've met Mormons who are I don't know if they're called Jesus Mormons, but Mormons who actually have a relationship with Jesus. But my heart still breaks for them because because if I were in their shoes, I think it would be so hard for me to sort of disconnect all of the non-biblical theology. There's a lot of good stuff in the Mormon church mm-hmm. and in Mormon culture, yeah. stuff I appreciate, but doctrinally, there's just a lot of stuff that I think leads you down the wrong road. And at some point, it would it, it would seem to me that there would be a, this cognitive dissonance between, re, you know, when I read something like this in the prodigal son parable, and then what I'm the actual teachings of the Mormon Church. And it's sad because, again, you have all of these people who are opting for a servant relationship mm-hmm. when they could have a son or daughter relationship yeah, with God. that's good. All right, here's the last mark, the final mark, that you might be a rule keeper 
who is actually far from God, and it's that you stay on the outside. You never actually have relationship with A, God, or even B, with his people, with his community. And we get this from the last two verses of the parable. It says in verse 31 and 32, his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. A couple things about this. I love how the father then just summarizes why he's happy, why he's celebrating, why he's extravagant. That's the first thing. And the second thing people might have missed, this is the end of the parable. So according to this, we don't know, but it seems like the older brother never went in. At least we don't know if he did. Yeah, that's really intriguing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, Jesus never shows him going in, tells it, it kind of, I think, kind of leaves the hearer hanging, saying, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to listen to his father's entreaties? Mm-hmm. Is he going to accept his father's perspective, which is based on, if you think about he's, he was dead, he's alive, he was lost, he was found, there's nothing transactional about that mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. That's the ex- opposite of transactional. And, and so the father's trying to get his son to, to look at the situation from a completely different perspective. It doesn't say he went in. It doesn't really say what he did. So we're kind of hoping or thinking or wondering, you know, what would I do in that situation? Or will he go in? I wonder what's going on. But there's really no evidence in the story that, that he did. Uh, you know, the suggestion of ending it that way, suggestion is that he remained angry and entitled and mm-hmm. estranged from his father and, in a, you know, sulking about, you know, what he felt like, the grievance that he, that he thought he had against the Father. But I also appreciate that Jesus doesn't end the parable by saying, and, he, and then the son was thrown out where there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? He doesn't say that way either. It's almost like Jesus is leaving it open-ended for his hearers, saying, it's up to you. It's yeah. your choice. Yeah. You, can, you can join in with the Father and with the angels, and you can celebrate whenever anyone comes to faith. You can celebrate whenever anyone who's lost, because it turns out we're all lost, that there's not one who seeks God. There's not one who's perfect. We all need God, rule keepers, rule breakers alike. We all need God. We're all dependent on God's grace, his extravagance, his reckless extravagance. Every single one of us is dependent on it, but it's really up to you whether you want to receive it. So Ross, I think maybe it would be fitting for us to end this episode with some instruction to the rule keeper who feels this conviction and is saying right now, okay, so what should I do? Yeah, this is, this is interesting. The, the answer really is you, it starts with humbling yourself yeah. to say that, man, I, I've overestimated the ability of my obedience to impress God, mm. you know, that really nothing I can do can ever make me worthy of, of God's approval. But God is holy and perfect, and and I can never entirely overcome sin, and I, there's always going to be, you know, some something tainted about what I do, tainted by my motive. So I have to come to grips with, you know, saying, I've been wrong. That's number one. Yeah, and that's a, that's really what we saw in week one. That was what happened with the the prodigal, the younger son, the prodigal son. Is he came to his senses? Mm-hmm. Was the way it read in the parable. I think the answer is you need, as an elder brother, you need to come to your senses. Exactly. You need to recognize that you're also 
with the pigs, in essence. Right. So repentance for the younger son looked like, you know, that acknowledgement, that change of attitude, change of mind, and then a turning around. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Repentance, only, only he's at a different starting point. So a turnaround or a change of mind, a change of attitude means something different for him, but it's still the first step. It's still the, the prerequisite of returning to a relationship with his father. And really it's the only... I don't know, I don't mean to press this too much, but it's the only, it's the first and only step because God right. then does the rest. Right. He, he, he doesn't receive back people who don't repent. Right. That, that much we know. He doesn't just, just because you're, his, you're a human being, right? That's universalism. Right. right. That, that God will love, God loves everybody and there's, nobody ever will pay any consequence for anything. No, that's not what the message of the Bible is. The message of the Bible is if you would turn to him in faith, yeah. then you'd be saved whether you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker. Right, regardless of anything. And, you know, um, often when I'm in conversation with religious people who are rule keepers, they're going like, wait, wait, that's too easy. You know, the way the father treated the prodigal son, oh, no, that, no, that's not fair, that's too easy. Um, but when you think about repentance for the older brother, and it requires this humility and this really brokenness and a recognition of his poverty, that, what's easy about that? That's not easy. That's right. the hardest thing in the world. Yeah. Well, that's good. And I, I think if you're a rule keeper out there listening to this, I hope that you got as much out of this as, as I did, and I'm sure, Ross, you did as well. So let's just review five marks of a rule keeper who's actually far from God. Number one, you work for yourself, not for the benefit of others. Number two, you get mad at God for his extravagance to others, which is related to number three, you're blind to God's extravagance toward you. Number four, you look at relationships transactionally. And number five, you stay on the outside. But that doesn't have to be true of you if you turn to him in faith, if you repent. Now, next week, Ross, we're going to finish this series by getting super practical. And I'm excited about this one because next week we're going to talk about how to love a prodigal. You know, we looked at the story so far, the the prodigal son, the prodigal father, and then the elder son. But there's a question some people might have, and maybe it's even been weighing heavy on their hearts as we've been going through this, is they're saying, what do I do for the prodigal in my life? I love them, but I don't know how to handle it. I don't know what to do. How do I get them to come back? And we're going to talk about that. Yeah, that'll be a great conversation. Yeah, so join us for the next episode.